we think that in an inclusive home ownership community are the most sustainable communities because you have now people from all different walks of lives living together, trying to improve a neighborhood and benefiting from those improvements. So it's inclusive growth. And when you're renting, you don't participate in the growth. In fact, more likely you get priced out when growth and prosperity comes. And so we think that uh, these two concepts together allow us to do something very different and, and sort of improve, improve our cities. Hi, this is Matt Sleppin and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode is a conversation with the founders of a new company called Neighbor, N-A-B-R, that's building a business platform to create, at scale, well-designed, sustainably built, attainably priced apartment units on a home ownership model. My emphasis is on the terms business platform and of scale, since Neighbor has been inspired, in their words, by consumer product companies like Lego, Tesla, and Apple, much more than any traditional real estate developer. Our interview recorded on April 22nd is with the three founders of Neighbor, Ronnie Behar, who came to this via his leadership role at WeWork, Nick Chim, who came via the technology route at Sidewalk Labs and Google, and Bjarke Engels, one of the world's leading architects and the founder of BIG, the Bjarke Engels Group architectural firm. Neighbor is building its first three projects in downtown San Jose as the proving ground for its business, but it's truly looking to create a scalable business platform, and one that, if successful, would make a dent in our housing supply crisis. This was a fun and, I think, eye-opening conversation about a very different approach to building a real estate company. We had some fun, although it was also a bit raw and close to home for both Ronnie and Bjorka, talking about the recent TV series, We Crashed, a dramatization of the WeWork story. Although there's certainly fiction, exaggeration, and characterization in that series, my takeaway is that the headline abuses in both We Crashed and the Super Pump series on Uber are real, but also sit alongside true innovation, breakthroughs, and disruption in industries really ripe for change. As our listeners know, one of the themes of Leading Voices has been hearing real estate leaders talk about their building this kind of scalable business platform. Although that's long been one of my mantras about the direction of the business, it's always been the opposite of what I promise as a search professional, which has been all about bespoke consulting. While I can now practice what I preached through the TerraSearch Partners merger with ZRG Partners, ZRG is a global talent advisory firm indeed built to scale where my work can now leverage the tools that a strong business platform provides and concurrently more strongly deliver that bespoke intensive consulting, which is still the essence of executive search. Thank you, Terra ZRG, for sponsoring Leading Voices. As always, I invite your feedback and ideas on the show. You can reach me at my email at matt.terrasearchpartners.com. Please do share these episodes with your friends in the business. If you've not already, please follow or subscribe to the show. And if you have a few minutes, please rate us on one of your favorite podcast apps. I hope that you enjoy the conversation with Bjorka, Ronnie, and Nick. So first of all, Ronnie, Nick, and Bjorka, thank you so much for being with me. Um, we're recording now from across the country. I think we have West Coast. I think we have East Coast. I think we have Copenhagen. So we're doing a lot of work here over the wires. And we're going to talk about your new company, Neighbor, that you're building together it's a business platform. I really want to focus on what business platform means, although we're going to make it real by talking about your first projects in San Jose. So that's the conversation today. And to get started, since we have three of your voices, why don't, and I'm going to point to each of you so that you don't just figure out who's talking, but let's hear each of your voices so our listeners can know who you are. And Ronnie, let's start with your unique accent. My unique accent. I, love it. It. I, I say that I was born in Israel. I grew up in Texas. That's the voice you're going to get. Ronnie Bahar, co-founder of CEO of Neighbor. Super excited to be here. You know, we've been working together for almost 10 years now between all three of us on and off. And uh, we have an incredible team that's taking its collective experience and trying to figure out what can we do to change the trajectory of housing in cities. Great conversation for us because we love the housing issue to discuss on Leading Voices, which is a critical one and a passion of mine and passion of the podcast. Nick? 
Hi, I'm Nick Kim. I'm glad to be here with you guys. My focus is really on how to use technology to scale the production of housing. And so everything from how we plan projects, how we sell uh, individual units to consumers, and how we deliver the buildings as quickly as possible. Cool. Thank you. Bjorka. Jaki Ingels, Danish accent and the architect and sort of in charge of, of the sort of design and of the product of, of Neighbor, which essentially is to, to try to bring the powers of productization to the built environment and to see if we can, just like all other productized products, make the places we live of a greater and greater and greater quality at a more and more attainable cost. Cool. So let's jump into it. Talk about productization and talk about housing and talk about how you guys came together and you came together out of after we we work. Ronnie, you were one of the leaders at we work. Bjorka, I saw you in the movie the other day, I have to tell you or someone doubling as you. But let's talk about kind of how this came together out of that crucible and what the goal is. So Bjarke and I started uh, working together about six, seven years ago um, within the concept, you know, uh, uh, the world of WeWork. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, our relationship was because we come with such different angles into what we do. Like for me, it was like, how do you productize things? And for Bjarke's, I think he was fascinated with that process where he was, you know, with big and type of projects that we're doing. And we weren't there on where we are today on housing, but that's how the relationship really we started. And six years later, we worked on multiple projects together. And post WeWork, where Nick and I also worked together and Bjarke worked together with Nick 10 years ago when Nick was uh, working at uh, uh, Google X on a new product to replace people like Bjarke's <laughs> architectural approach with uh, AI and uh, machine learning and so on. I was looking to continue to do the type of work I was doing at WeWork and uh, spending time with Bjarke in Copenhagen. And as we started to have these conversations, we were, were like, well, housing for us has always been the thing that we're very passionate about. Commercial office, I think, is, a, is, is fairly straightforward today. And uh, we spent about a year or so just studying what is going on, understanding the data, understanding the issues we see as process and kind of formulating this thing called neighbor from so many different angles. But we like to say that it's, it was this squirrely path that every time we got stuck, we had to start over again. And then eventually we got to a formula that we're, we felt really strong about, we believe can be deliver on this idea of higher quality, sustainability, and attainable product in cities. And, and talk about kind of the combination of what, what's the problem that you're trying to solve and then think about productization in a minute. But what part of the housing shortage and is this globally? Is this in the States? What, what's the issue you're addressing? And at what income levels of the issue are you talking? Yeah, so I think uh, the problem we're trying to solve is how to create more supply. So the reason why prices are high generally is because there's more demand than there is supply. I think in this industry, there's a magical property, which is as the prices go up, the cost of construction magically goes up too. And so it's odd. I think there's a relationship. I haven't quite figured it out yet. And then I think on the development side, really understanding what are the drivers of, of costs. And I think our, our foil uh, to that is scale. And so if you start thinking about the process development, not as a single building, but as a pipeline of buildings, then you start looking for solutions in different ways. And so even in our first project, we're entitling three buildings at the same time. This gives us scale economies in terms of how we design the building, how we work with our suppliers, how we recruit our customers, and whatever surplus that we generate as a result of this effort, we just put into the fourth building, the fifth building, and the sixth building. And so the way that projects are capitalized today they're effectively special vehicles, oh, sorry, special purpose vehicles that represent the interests and stakeholders of a single building. Mm -hmm. And so everything has to happen within that scope. So all the profits and losses happen within that scope. And in fact, it's a bad idea to ever mix them because now you have conflicts of interests. And so, so by rethinking how we do development and the scale which, which we do development, uh, I think we have a chance to break through this. Um, and then just to tie that back in together with what Bjorka said about productization, productization enables the scale of the delivery, production and delivery of these buildings. And so that's not to say that every building will be the same, 
but there should be enough commonality that enables greater supply chain efficiency. And then ultimately that will help drive costs down. So I so think there's no, there isn't this, there isn't one thing that we're doing. We're just studying this problem, trying to debug where the blockers are uh-huh. and then try to gracefully step over them. Uh-huh. And in this, in the, production of housing world in single family residential, they do productize it, but not mm-hmm. in multifamily. Multifamily winds up being, let's get this one done. Let's get this one done. Let's get this one done. Unfortunately, even the upscale builders have that as a challenge. That's correct. So what's the density of your product? Because that would differentiate from single family. The first uh, product offering we're, we're bringing to the market in, 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 uh, in downtown San Jose is a kind of 20-story loft-like typology. And in many ways, we've been inspired by the, by the qualities and the characteristics of the, of the Soho loft. You can say, I, I, ironically, the, the loft is a typology that sort of evolved, uh, you know, 100, 150 years ago for manufacturing. And uh, it basically divorced the architecture of the plan layout from the structure. So you have long spans, tall columns, you, you maximize the, the, the openings towards the, the outside because daylight is for free. And within that, you had the maximum freedom to manufacture whatever needed manufacturing. And it just turned out that 100 years later, it's still one of the most desirable ways of, of living. And it, one of the aspects it has is that a, a typical loft building in Brooklyn, you find a student living next to a billionaire. And the only sort of difference is really that, you know, the billionaire has slightly more column base uh, and, uh, and, and maybe some more expensive finishes. And we love this kind of democratizing power of productization that when you look at another productized product, the, the smartphone, the billionaire and the student have the same phone. So in a way, what we're, what we're trying to deliver is uh, in, in this case, the most sustainable the most attainable and the highest and the most enjoyable form of living. And the way we do it is, first of all, this idea of, of creating, you use the term platform for the, for the, for the business and, and for the technology, but, but even the building type is a kind of platform onto which you can bring a whole variety of different interior architectures. Mm-hmm. We even imagine that uh, like already like with the first buildings, there will be interiors designed uh, by my architectural practice uh, big. There'll be in-house designs by neighbor and there'll also be uh, third-party designs by other sort of uh, up-and-coming and, and, and brilliant uh, uh, interior designers that, uh, that in a way we can give a stage to bring their craft and designs to a bigger market. And, and then also on the outside, it sets us free within this kind of modular building system. It is elastic, so it can expand and contract. It can step up and down to to take advantage of different available building sites, but also the exterior, we have in, incredibly generous outdoor spaces that allow the residents to almost get an outdoor room. If, if you're living in, uh, in, in, in California, the outdoor space is, is a lot more enjoyable than the one you would find in Denmark. And in Denmark, by law, every single building has a balcony. So in a way, we, we're bringing this kind of series of generous qualities to the market in a, in a kind of very systematic and, and, and adaptable way. Uh-huh. So I want to think about the different legs of the stool of what this business looks like and how you're doing this. So one of them is design, and we can drill down on that. The other is the ownership vehicle. The other is marketing, technology, sustainability. Take these in some order, and I'll lob this up to maybe Ronnie. I want to start with the with the ownership side because it also touches back what you talked about from an inventory perspective. So. Mm-hmm. When we were doing our research, we realized that less than 2% of all new housing starts are apartments for ownership. The ramifications of that are beyond the real estate industry. It's everything that has to do with our cities are functioning, our civic involvement in our cities, our socioeconomic gap. I mean, like it touches all of that in one place. Our And our sustainability, right? Densification, use, utilizing resources together is the only path really that we can, uh, you know, if our cities are sustainable, then everything else works because that's where is the biggest impact. So... We looked at this, we're like, wow, such a big opportunity. Why is no one doing this? 
why are condo projects so limited to just a few markets and uh, have not gotten any traction? What is the user experience that it's not there if I need to choose a single family home versus a, an apartment? What features do I need to have to, to you know, offset this idea of having you know, a small lot with a 1,500, 1,800 square foot home that you have today in San Jose versus having an apartment that's equal in size, right? So it had to do with the, the feel, the apartment, the sizing, the outdoor access. It has to do with the operation cost, my own experience, your own experience. So this for us is, is alone such a huge opportunity. And then when you talk about the entire risk process and you realize developers don't want to develop the condos because of all the risk that comes with it. And the beginning for us, of starting this process. Okay, we're going to build apartments for ownership as a product that's scalable. What is the offering that needs to come to consumers, both from a product experience, buying experience, transaction? That is the biggest opportunity. And as we launched in December, consumers were starting to communicate with us. And we learned, you know, one of the key important stats is that almost 45% of people who signed up for our product are moving from a single family home which is a huge factor for us to see, wow, okay, so there is there is an opportunity to really mobilize people back to the city. This is not just us thinking uh, that people want to own in cities and really validated that. So, And then everything that happens in terms of product opportunities, financial structure is a ripple effect of that mindset of that ownership. Let me ask a couple of questions about that. First one is people are nervous about condos because of builder liability and that's the issue. Although maybe there's a business platform behind this, but that's why there aren't tons of production condo builders. There's probably other reasons, but but talk about that. Yeah, there's, a, there's a lot of reasons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, so, I have so, three or four I want to ask you about. So talk about that yeah. first. Okay. So the first one from a liability perspective, yes, it is a risky uh, because of, you know, especially in states like California. By having a systems approach and having repetition, you can have a really high quality infrastructure to avoid that. Is it avoidable completely at this stage of the company? No. But if you tackle that head on with this kind of repetition, investing in R&D and really delivering a high quality product, and this is all, you know, the issue is not the refrigerator warranty. The issue is, you know, much bigger than structural yep. fundamental issues with the Water. building. You can actually reduce that risk substantially. Mm -hmm. And are you able to, as a business platform, have some kind of insurance or backdrop from that? We're following the the, the regular path today of, of our condo be, be, being developed today. So it's not like there's yep. zero being developed today in, in, in California. We're following the regular path, but we will see tremendous improvement from, from building to building yep. uh, that we can actually de-risk that process. And then, and then when you think about it, it transcends also to the financial model, uh, the majority of condo projects only make money because of appreciation of the market. Going into the project, it's usually not that promising. And then, you know, developers take a big risk, you know, they're going into it and then that's why they release inventory in phases. That's why the, the pricing keeps going up because there's no availability and they have to do that way to make it pencil. So with us again, partnering early with the consumer in the process, which doing pre-sales, understanding what consumers are looking for, uh, where they want to live and what kind of price point uh, they're looking for. We can create product that match that demand. So really de-risking the financial uncertainty that happens with the project as well. And let me drill down on another point that you made, because you talked about 45% are moving from a single family home. That's actually less solving the housing crisis because people are moving and it's an affordability issue, which is people are coming in with the down payment. So this is middle, upper middle class buyers in terms of an economic strata at least if it's 45% in California coming from a single family home moving downtown, there'll be different models and different drivers in different markets. Talk about that part. Talk about price point. Talk about affordability issues. And you probably also have some requirements in your properties. Let's talk about the dumbbell. Let's talk about the dumbbell, Nick. Our goal is to create as inclusive as communities as possible. So, and income inclusion is, it's really hard. Because, in fact, how we segregate ourselves in society largely has to do with the price of housing. So people move into certain neighborhoods mm -hmm. that have to support certain home prices. And then that becomes kind of your social sphere. In the city, uh, if you have a lot of rentals, then those then become your communities. And I think the question is, is there a business model? Is there a desire to create more inclusive housing or living communities. And 
If you look at today's inclusionary housing policies, you basically have a market-based subsidy where market rate units are subsidizing deed-restricted affordable units. We did a calculation that in San Jose, each unit that's market rate subsidizes as a rate, at a rate of between forty dollars to $50,000 per unit for an inclusionary unit. But the income requirements for an inclusionary unit is you know, anywhere between 80 to 120% AMI mm-hmm. uh, for, for condos, uh, so what they call moderate income. And then market rate is 180 to 200% AMI. And so what you end up with is this dumbbell-shaped, barbell-shaped sort of income curve. And the question is, is there a way or an opportunity for us to create a more normal distribution of income? So how do we fill in that middle? And there's a lot of talk in, in policy circles around missing middle. Generally, they talk around they talk about it as a housing typology, meaning you know duplexes and townhomes. Uh, but we th- we're trying to accomplish this within a sort of mid-rise, high-rise uh, typology. And so, and the way that our idea to smooth that out is to create more flexible financing programs. And so we've created this program, which we call LEAP, Mm -hmm. uh, which provides uh, every resident a path to home ownership. It's too early to tell what the uptake and conversion rates are going to be, but we're trying to construct a system where everyone who moves into a neighbor home who's not buying up front will have an option to purchase their home at a fixed price or a known price in the future. You know, the challenge of buying a home today is that as you're saving for down payment, the prices keep on going up. And so you have to, your rate of savings has to exceed uh, the rate of inflation for the home. Yeah. And so our LEAP program allows us to lock in that price for the consumer. We have a special deal with our capital partners to enable this program to work. Mm-hmm so that they know exactly what their savings target need to be in order to convert to home ownership. Mm-hmm. And we think that in an inclusive home ownership community are the most sustainable communities uh, because you have now people from all different walks of lives living together, trying to improve a neighborhood and benefiting from those improvements. So it's inclusive growth. Right. And when you're renting, you don't participate in the growth. In fact, more likely you get priced out when growth and prosperity comes. And so we think that uh, these two concepts together allow us to do something very different and, yeah. and sort of improve improve our cities. It's interesting. It's back to what Bjorka said a few minutes ago. If you look at our traditional cities and neighborhoods, you have mixed incomes of all varieties in a single condo building or co-op building in New York City or wherever it is, that's what we have lived with for generations. And Hmm. what we've been building has been kind of single income strata properties. So if you're enabling that, that is what kind of a traditional neighborhood gets to feel like even within one building. Yeah, I I do have to add, these are our aspirations. Of course. Um, We're not going to get there day one, uh, but everyone on the team is committed to that goal. And I think that uh, our goal is to build enough of a margin in our business that allows us to basically realize these uh, realize these aspirations. Well, the question is twofold. So one is you're talking about a margin within your business, but the other is a financing vehicle that's basically a rent-to-own financing vehicle in the condos that you're developing. So that combination, there's some internal subsidy, but you have a financing vehicle that kind of addresses different income strata. We believe that there is a source of capital out there that would be supportive of this. And so in a way, no one ever made this offer. And so that capital flow doesn't exist. But we've had many, many conversations with different sources of capital that are really interested in how to use capital for good and how to you know, still have returns, but more modest returns but make sure that the capital is uh, deployed so that it makes our societies more equitable. And so, and we don't need a lot of money to do this. And I think if so, we can find some of these pockets 
uh, I think we can create this program that's really, really consumer friendly. And that part of the product, let's to focus again, but let's move on after this is really to get to those units, the financing of those units. It's not product project financing for you necessarily. It's a financing structure for the rent to own units for people who can't really afford the down payment. Yeah, no, that's such a really good point. And this is one of the benefits for doing condos because you can't run this program on a rental because rentals by definition is a single owner by converting every unit into its own asset. We're able to match capital specifically to those units. Mm -hmm. And so we have a tiered capital structure that allows us to address affordability at every income tier and a unit by unit level. This allows us to, uh, to, to do this work. And if you think about you know, your monthly rent check, 60%, maybe even higher of that goes to pay capital for the cost of borrowing and the, and the required profits. Mm -hmm. And if you have more friendly capital, your monthly payments go down dramatically. And so I think to me, that's where the opportunity is to figure out how to match capital with consumers. And if we can do that, we can dramatically increase affordability. Cool. Let's come back to one day we'll talk about friendly capital and matching capital with consumers, because those are a bunch of things to unpack. But I want to move on to a different subject, which is thinking about your buildings and how you construct them, constructability, sustainability, environmentalism, and how you're building these. And then also, are you able to bring down the cost per unit? And thinking of that both for your first projects, but then since you are creating a business platform on a replicable basis, are you able to bring this down to some percentage less than average in the world? I can start and I'm sure BRK will have great uh, input into on the product side, but I'll tell you this, like when we started the first version of the project and we went out to, to price it out, we didn't get that big of a sticker shock, but then we started our business right when COVID started. Now, fast forward, you know, you're 12 months into this and the world completely changed with supply chain and all those issues that we see happening, right? So, so we're not unique to us. And I think that process really put a lot of pressure on us to, to really refine our approach with the supply chain, with the constructability of the project and, and, and our partners. And we're not coming into the market actually in a cheaper than market product. We're coming actually we're specifically working in a market that has so much pressure in it that we can come in with the highest quality product at the top of the market to start with. But we, everything we're specifying and all the major components, we have mapped a path that will help us reduce cost within that market. And the cost reduction is obviously has to do with all the benefits of productization and scale. If it's the you know automating uh, uh, part of the processes as much as we can, if it's uh, de-risking cost, because capital cost has to do with that as well. If it's how we work with the supply chain, where today a supplier has to wait a year, bid for a project, get into the project, you know, there's all this guessing game, all this risk. Well, we're going to be here for a long time. So what can we do to really help you maintain a healthy margin, but improve the flow of product that will reduce cost for our consumers and share that between the supply chain capital and consumers where we're, we're the middle person. So that's an entire optimization. So it's not one single thing, but you know, it's a product building constructability strategy, a relationship with the supply chain strategy, and then all the little incremental things that we can capture uh, along the way to reduce that cost with a target that's really to be about 10 to 15% below the market for that product market fit that we're launching at that time. It is not you know, this idea that you can be 50, 70% cheaper very quickly is, is unrealistic. And we also have to remember there's a gap. The market goes up. And if you get efficiencies, eventually this, that gap is going to grow somewhat. But your, your costs are not going to go down. So in San Jose, which is your first product, you're at the highest quality, at the highest price point in the market. Eventually, as you scale, you'll get to 10 to 15% below, which is good. For that specific market category, if it's a mid-rise product, that unit size, this finished choices. So you have different levers within your product range, uh, but the target is to be 15% below that market for that specific audience. Which you, which you won't be able to achieve at the first time that you're coming out, which makes total sense. But also you're pricing in very sustainable stuff. You're pricing in cutting edge stuff that will over time also pay for itself, but that over time paying for itself may come in at a higher price point, but a lower operational cost. 
comments on those parts of the of the building structure that you're doing, Bjorka, this may be yours. Yes. I mean, I, I think one, one of the things we've done is that we have tried to gauge the entire market offering as it stands today and carefully curate what we believe are the best in class in terms of building materials for the structure, ways of assembling the, the facade, ways of creating the outdoor space, uh, and, and, and also just like basic technical installations, uh, heat pumps, photovoltaics, the, the building envelope. So that's on, on one hand. Then, then also, of course, you know, I have two decades of experience working with multifamily uh, housing in the kind of mid-market segment in, uh, in Scandinavia. And because of the equality of, of the Scandinavian uh, society, uh, salaries are, are very high. Uh, and our weather is, is as far as from Californian weather as you can, as you can get. Yeah. So uh, uh, it, it's a very fast and efficient way of building with a lot of prefabrication and a very f- quick assembly on site. Uh, so we're taking a lot of those best practices and bringing them to uh, California. And then we have selected for the first buildings that they're going to be in, entirely made out of, uh, out of mass timber. So essentially cross laminated timber, which has a lot of benefits. It's incredibly light, uh, which means that it, it reduces uh, the amount of energy for the, for the transportation. Uh, you can source it quite locally because you have available forestry all, all around North California and the adjacent states. And then it, it's the simplest and most blatant way to lower the embodied carbon of the building because the trees essentially suck carbon out of the atmosphere when they grow, and then they sequester that carbon in the bones of the building. It's also very easy to eventually recycle if a century down the, the road, uh, the neighbor buildings haven't, haven't gotten listed uh, and, and there should be a reason to. But then also, I think it, that brings in a, another aspect. Uh, and, 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 and again, back to the, the inspiration of the loft. The loft type, they're, they're built with a kind of quality in the bones of the building. So you have cast iron columns or you have wooden columns. You have exposed wooden beams. Sometimes they're, they're concrete. But essentially, the bones of the building come with, with attribute. The same is going to be true here that the raw building, the columns are mass timber, the beams, the undersides of the ceiling. So already the raw loft without any applied finish has the warmth and texture and and quality exactly of of mass timber. So that means that we don't have to spend money or or energy or resources on, on making a shitty base building nice. It's actually already incredibly nice as, uh, as, as it is. So, so those are the things like, how can you make a building have everlasting attribute similar to the lofts that 100 years after their, their construction actually feels warm and friendly and with quality to us today, even if they were built for manufacturing back then. So, so that's sort of the mindset. Can we find things that are performing better ecologically and economically but also aesthetically, then we have a, a triple win. Yeah. So I want to talk about a couple things. One is I want to talk about San Jose, and then I want to talk about the growth of this business and the platform and the scale and what that means, because we never get to talk about that. So, But first, just a little bit more to make San Jose real and talk about kind of location, price point, place in the market, and where San Jose is going, because I know there's a lot happening there. So San Jose downtown Sofa District is where we're starting. It's a lively neighborhood. Uh, everything from food and beverages, uh, our district on its own, uh, very walkable, and there's so much going on around it. I mean, we we did the quick math. There's almost thirty billion dollars of development coming out of the ground within a few mile radius of us. San Jose does not have, um, other than one project, any real condo projects coming on the market. But between all the activity of office and other resi, we see it as, you know, there's such a huge opportunity to create a neighborhood there. That's the, the foundation is there. And, you know, if, if you live in New York uh, and you talked about Brooklyn uh, 10, 12 years ago, Brooklyn was cool. Brooklyn became cooler than anywhere else in New York. 10 years later. And I think a lot of that applies to Silicon Valley because there's nowhere to go back up. If you want to live in Silicon Valley, you want to be able to commute to work um, um, within uh, 30 minutes or take public transportation, um, that's the market you want to be in. It's said differently. uh, We're very excited. There's no downtown in Silicon Valley. So San Jose is going to become, fingers crossed, that downtown. 
I mean, with all this investment, you know, we're a tiny little fraction in all of that, but between the, all the major tech companies that are coming in, big developers, this is us, you know, catching the wave at the right time. Uh, so I think it'll create tremendous value for consumers who, who, who buy in our buildings. Mm-hmm. And you have three properties there that are con- being constructed. What's the timing? What's the current status of each of those? Because that will be the template that people are going to look at to say, okay, these guys are real. Absolutely. So first building first uh, before the other two. The goal is to open sales uh, for consumers to really start signing up, you know, with deposits, configure their units and so on by the end of Q3, early Q4 of this year and start construction immediately parallel to that. This is, uh, it's one of three. Um, All three buildings are are a little bit different in many ways and we'll take learnings from one to two to three as we go through that. So this gives us a concentrated effort, both from the innovation on the product and the deployment of it to work in one place rather than you know uh, get uh, uh, scattered all, all over different sites and so on. After that, we plan to continue to grow in that area. This is a big opportunity for us to continue to be uh, vertical. Mm-hmm. And based on these three projects, um, we'll we'll make decisions what size and where in the area will be the next projects. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's talk about the future because this is interesting on those three projects but if you're talking about productization you've talked a lot about the building the tesla model or the iphone model of real estate so to take advantage of business platform this has to grow a lot and probably grow with and through others yes absolutely so so it, you can't you know it's a carriage kind of a carriage and a horse kind of things right so the first thing is you want to get a product out and you're starting it with the consumers where usually you, you know, you get the product built and then you get the consumers brought in. Right. So we're starting early with the consumers building based on that input, our first building and around it, what the team and leveraging tremendously the work that Nick does start to unitize everything. So the unitization of the process of the components of the transaction enables us to leverage technology to automate every part of the process where we can do so. So it's it's really exciting that we can see the results of that starting as early as we are right now already. And then uh, post the first building, um, we can really show the, that these results can produce over time real access to scalability. And that doesn't mean that we'll be developing every project that neighbor wants to do. But if we can package it right, we can work with different partners via be other developers, landowners, municipalities, and corporations, and communities at large that want to build more in their area. And I assume that that packaging of this to be used by others and with others is the essential part of your growth strategy, or else you're back to being a builder just a little bit more. Let's come back to that question in a minute. And Nick, is there anything about the technology side of this, which we haven't talked about, and maybe some direct-to-consumer stuff, which we don't see in real estate. We see it in single family, but maybe not in the condo world. But talk about that. Yeah, I think we kind of talked about how important it is to standardize in order to enable automation. Mm-hmm. And so I think uh, in general, every time we choose a building system like CLT or look at you know other types of prefabricated methodologies, we, we try to understand how these systems will scale Mm -hmm. over time with improvements in technology and also how it scales with volume. And so CLT is strictly more expensive today, but we believe that over time, CLT will be cost competitive with site build Mm -hmm. with conventional materials. Now, that's a big belief because the gap is pretty significant, but we know that labor doesn't scale. So anything that's overly dependent on labor mm-hmm. um, is going to have a really difficult time scaling, even though it might be lower cost today. And so this kind of rigorous assessment of every part of the process, choosing systems that uh, with some R&D will allow us to break the cost curve or shift the cost curve, and then in combination, and then ultimately driving scale across our entire supply chain. That All that work needs to be complemented by scaling our customer acquisition. So we're, we're able to excite our suppliers because we've shown we can generate consumer demand. And so in a way, that's the process that gets the flywheel started. There's also a really interesting catch. It's not obvious. The reason why 
developers uh, end up developing unique buildings is because they feel a constant need to differentiate themselves from other developers. Mm -hmm. And so they create a lot of what I call unnecessary (laughs) variations in their product. And that unnecessary variation creates a lot of complexities and irregularities and inefficiencies in the way these projects are delivered. Hang on, I want to push on that one because that's true. Except you mm-hmm. go to China and you see about fifty thousand buildings all. Yeah, but that's the why they're able to exactly. But that's why they're able to deliver that many units that quickly. Now we want to do better than that. Be deadly but neighborhoods. We could, but we could use technology to add more variations into as long as it, as long as it's within the rule set that we've created. Those variations are cost manageable. Okay. So, so I think that's, I think that's the, that's the, that's, that would be the key distinction. And talk about yeah, may, maybe also, um, I just wanted to um, maybe belabor that point because of course this, this is where uh, my, my expertise falls, uh, falls in is that the irony is that today the process of developing a, a multifamily uh, project may be a very bespoke one and somehow s- starts with architects and engineers and developers and clients and, and sort of as, as if it was the first time we were doing this building and we're doing it from scratch. But because the process rubs against the same market forces and the same forces of the industry, they ironically end up practically in the same place. So despite the fact that every multifamily building is designed and built from scratch, it ends up looking the same as all of the other ones. And it ends up containing the same Whereas I think what, what we're proposing is to take advantage of a systematic approach where we create almost like a, this kind of platform type that would enable almost infinite variability on the inside and infinite variability on the outside. So you don't end up with the kind of housing projects of the kind of post-war expansion into satellite cities in Europe and US, mm-hmm. like the, the projects. And you don't end up with endless fields of identical high-rises as you, as you see in China, but you end up with a kind of a systems approach where the, the module and the system allows incredible variety in a way like just metaphorically that the way that Lego, by being faithful to a system of the clutch grip and a kind of modularity with very few elements, you can create any imaginable building or landscape or whatever, like the, in a way, the power of Lego is the compatibility of the bricks and the kind of counterintuitive effect that by adhering to a system and a systems approach, you liberate imagination and variability. Understood. So is this therefore something that as you scale, I'll ask two different questions. One, do you joint venture with, say, a multifamily builder who knows how to build at scale? So Mill Creek, Wood Partners, Alliant, whoever, however these companies are, are you able to do that and be their partner to bring this to them? Because they want to build, but they could build with you. Second question is does this have to be home ownership? I'm thinking more of affordable housing is can you deliver everything you just described? It's not on an ownership model, but you're just, you're building, bringing the package in. So that could be used for production housing, which often in states is tax credit stuff. So two different questions, but they're both related to how you grow this. So to start first, like we want to build right now that the neighbor brand is for ownership uh, direct to consumers. This is how we're establishing ourselves in the market to start with. Can we build rental, affordable rental, and you know, under this brand and other brands? Of course, we can. But that is not where we're focused on, Your and part. because we want to get we want to get to focus on this first. That opens up other opportunities. And since we, you know, we call ourselves a, a people first housing company for the reason when we say people is not only the consumers is you know, the right supply chain partners, the right development partners. We want to do this responsibly so we can optimize for the highest quality product at the best price point that is sustainable. And that is not necessarily where everybody wants to optimize for. So any partner that is looking to achieve that is a good partner for us. Any partner that cares about doing that at scale is the best partner for us. And that's what we look for. But as as, as a neighbor direct delivery at this stage, we're, we're doing it under the neighbor brand for ownership on their housing. Right. 
kind of licensing out. As you license it out, it may be different, but as you build it yourself, it's going to be this at least for now. Yeah, I agree with you. But the same way a hotel companies license out to aligned brands and they have brand standards and there's, there's, it's more than just, Hey, you can do whatever you want with it. If you want to maintain that brand value, which the, the ultimate measurement for consumers that they have a beautiful place to live, but it also increase in, in value for them, right? You have to have these brand standards. And that comes across the board of how you deal with supply chain, how you innovate, what's the quality you're going to deliver, and so on. The reason why housing is expensive is because they're not in a sufficient supply. And so it's very expensive to build new housing for extremely low income. Um, so I think there's been lots of studies in Oakland and San Francisco and other places. Affordable housing is actually more expensive than market rate housing to produce at, at a rate of 700000 to a million dollars per unit. And so our perspective is that if we can increase the supply on the home ownership side, we can basically enable the filtering effect of housing to work again. So, because historically it's what filtering allows for greater affordability in the way that New York has is great because it has such a diversity of housing stock. We don't have that in different, uh, in many of the markets across the U S. And so I think from a, from an economic system perspective, what we should do is people who want to own in the middle income uh, area should have an opportunity to do that, but with different uh, housing types, home types, that will then free up the rental stock and then and then hopefully that will release the pressure mm-hmm. on the rental market. So I think there's many ways to address affordability. Mm-hmm. And in, in many cases, you know, we should address the root cause of this problem, which is filtering is not working and we should increase supply, but increase supply in the middle income and high income segment in order to uh, uh, to release the stress on the on the low income side. It's a good point. When you have a housing supply and demand issue that essentially drives the marketplace, particularly if you're able to get to middle income people in your typology, then this can work. If you're just creating more luxury housing, that's tougher to make that argument. Mm -hmm. But if you're addressing the middle, missing middle, and it's attainable there, then you could do it. Yep, that's right. We're going to have to wrap up in a few minutes, but I can't not have this conversation without talking about this TV show I'm watching. So I've been watching the We Crash TV show. I've been watching the Uber TV show. I've been watching Billions. I've been watching Succession. I'm like obsessed with these these tough stories. And one thing I'm finding in We Crashed is I'm both inspired as heck by there was some magic there that was really deep. And at the same time, that magic was out of control. And I want to just ask you guys a question, particularly... Ronnie and Bjorka, who were there in the room, what the lessons learned from that were both on the positive side and the negative side and how that affects how you're approaching this new business. I mean, first of all, uh, having been given the dubious honor of being portrayed uh, <laughs> as, as this kind of cliche of uh, kind of nebulous, uh, r- rambling sort of uh, architect that talks about clouds of Burmese teak. <laughs> the, Sorry about uh, that. I, I think they really murdered my Danish accent. But apart from that, then it's also like almost comical that the ultimate sign that things are, are, are going downhill is when they they hire me to design a school. I think We Crashed is, is clearly a work of fiction and a pretty enjoyable one. Mm-hmm. I think um, Neighbor as a company is is kind of profoundly and fundamentally different is that Despite it saddens me to say so, like uh, myself, Nick and, uh, and Ronnie, we are all quite seasoned. We can't really claim to be young entrepreneurs. We're probably as late stage in our life as any entrepreneur is these days. So um, I, I spent two decades really understanding the built environment and how buildings get designed, conceived, permitted and, and executed. And I have a tremendous amount of, of learnings from both Europe, America, and, and also Asia. Nick has done the same in the space of algorithms and, and artificial intelligence and, and parametrics. And actually with m- most of his career focusing on the built environment, including creating a, a, an urban simulator a replica and the work that we were doing together 10 years ago. And similarly, Ronnie has is a founder of a company that, that actually delivers uh, glass partition walls. And that's, that's how he ended up working with, uh, with WeWork. Uh, so he knows everything about rolling out built environment at scale. So I think in that sense, we are 
as boringly mm-hmm. experienced as, as you can possibly be. And therefore also, I, I believe that between the, the three of us and our respective organizations and, and the rest of the team we've built for, for Neighbor, we have also a much more long view and let's say maybe a more patient mindset because we actually know what it takes and the amount of effort it takes to operate in this space. So in that sense, in, in, in many ways, I think Neighbor couldn't be more different as a company than, than some of the companies you mentioned. Yeah, of course. And Ronnie, you live this. So I know this is an emotional question, but got to ask. So I, I would say first is that my WeWorker experience was amazing in every way possible. I got to work with the most amazing people, try new things every day. And, you know, the first five years were just, you know, an unbelievable ride because, this is a world before you know, you know the concept of what is prop tech and how the real the, you know the, the real environment technology and experience come together and so so you know it was everything was new every single day right. and seeing people come from all different industries into one industry and and, and focusing on one thing and, and for us you know we we never saw it as a space we always thought about it as community right it was about people and i think that was a driving force of the company and that's why it got so much attention and that's why people loved the company people loved working in the company and and consumers tenants loved coming to the office so it it, it that transformation is, was an unbelievable experience to be part of and then and then you look at the other side of it that comes with the world of venture it's growth right growth right. at all cost right and the build environment um, does not function like software uh, there's absorption there's time the stabilization there's all these things that need to happen and they're they're counter to growth <laughs> in many ways so you know, uh, for me, I'm just grateful to have that experience and, and know that, as Bianca stated, like our goal is we want to move very, very fast. So we, we have two goals to say we start with building one now and 10 years later, we want to be at 100,000 units a year. Somehow we need to deploy 100,000 units a year. What's the, the roadmap together? And the first part of that 10 years is very, very slow um, to get that right. And, and, then, and then you really start to pick up speed towards the end. So and, and the last thing is, is that with over $52 billion invested in venture and the prop tech in the last 24 months, you know, last, last I saw the calculation, everything is changing. All this innovation between parts, deployment, finance is all changing. And we believe that that's going to empower the industry to change direction. And we want to be in the forefront of it and harness that and, and pass that to consumers and the overall industry to improve our cities. So everything is, is about timing when you start a business more than anything. That's the most important part of you have success. So when we started this with COVID, it didn't look like it was the right time. But when you look at all the activity, you're like, okay, this is the right time to start this business. So maybe in 10 years from now, when we have this conversation, we will see the same changes that we saw post-World War II. So um, very grateful to have an opportunity to go on this journey with this amazing team, our collective team, and the kind of support we've had between investors, consumers, um, and, par- and other partners. Totally true. So Bjorka, question for you. We, and we're going to get you back on the podcast, I hope, and we'll have a whole conversation about this stuff. You are one of the biggest thinkers on the planet about issues relating to the built environment and climate change, I think. Thank you. I will say you are. And I will say that that is a subject where I wake up on the wrong side of the bed every day. I'm just like, there's no way. There's no friggin' way we're going to get our hands around this stuff. We can't pull it together as a global community and a specific community. And when I hear you talk, it's either your energy, your intelligence, or the lilt of your voice. Maybe that's all it is. But you, you feel optimistic about those things. So talk about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think optimism is not a question of naivety. It's actually, uh, I think... Um the empirical evidence supports optimism that that we are actually uh, consistently doing better and better and uh, and and of course we always have to address challenges and uh, but we are incredibly adaptable i mean I, I believe so much in 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 darwin and the theory of evolution through adaptation that i called my son darwin there you go so I th- there there is that and then i would also say um for example one of the things that have been concerning uh, many for good reasons and thankfully, is, uh, of course, uh, climate change. Right. And I think um, 
maybe a few things to say about this. And you can, you can say, I, I really see neighbor as being uh, one way that we can, in a more sort of systematic way, approach environmental performance in the built environment by, by not just being designers who, who try to make what we are asked to as good as possible, but also really get on the other side of the table and, and, and really sort of establish hard demands for ourselves. And by continuing to do so, to be able to uh, leverage partnerships and, and, and scale to, to really deliver on not just the economic performance, but also on the environmental performance. So, so that's one thing. But then actually sort of uh, around the time of the pandemic, we um, actually what happened when the pandemic started was that, uh, of course, we, we all had to uh, go home and work remote. Uh, and then as a result, our model workshop was empty. And then we realized that we, we use a lot of 3D printers. So uh, we realized that we could actually convert our model shops to manufacturing uh, uh, face shields and, and, and ventilator tubes. And, and we ended up for like making 25,000 uh, uh, face shields in the first six weeks until the, the normal supply chain caught up. So, so suddenly we actually had within our office a skill set, in this case, our model workshop, that could address the most urgent uh, issue on the planet right then. Right. And it made us think that maybe we had other skill sets that we could like, in a way, what is the most urgent or important challenge we can apply our skill set to? And we thought we're good at making designing buildings and, and making plans for neighborhoods or even entire towns or cities that take decades to realize. And then we realized, you know, 2050 is only 28 years away now. And that's when all of Earth should become uh, carbon neutral or all of humanity on Earth should become carbon neutral if we want to live up to the, to the Paris Agreement. So we thought, what if we actually apply this kind of architectural capacity to design, to, to take in a lot of complex data, a lot of complex input, and synthesize it into a coherent, holistic master plan and apply that not to a city block or a neighborhood or a, a city, but to the entire Earth. So, so we thought, like, what if we consider all of Earth a 510 square kilometer large site that happens to be 71% ocean and 9% glaciers and mountains, and, and the remaining uh, habitable land is half nature and half pretty much agriculture with a tiny bit of city. And, and then started to think, like, what, how can we take all of the existing available technologies and address the, the issue? Because also one of the things that often the the discussion around sustainability becomes very confused because, of course, it's, it is uh, shaped by ideology and preconceptions. So we thought, what, what, what if we look at it without ideology and without, uh, you know, having already concluded what is the right political approach, but really say, can we be 10 billion people as we will be in 2050 with the same high quality of life as we have, for instance, in Denmark or Singapore? They have roughly the same life expectancy and um, access to healthcare and, and, uh, and energy consumption. Um, is that possible? And, and a lot of people say it's not, like the earth can't sustain that many people living that well. And, and then we started breaking it down to saying, okay, so uh, if we are 10 billion people, what is each earthling's share of earth just as a surface? Right, and it's the answer is two hundred thirty-eight by two hundred thirty-eight meters. That's roughly seven hundred fifty by seven hundred fifty uh, feet. So that's that's your slice of Earth, but two thirds of it is ocean. And and then we start like breaking that down, and then we see how much energy is. What is your ten billionth share of the total energy consumption? And could we supply that with wind energy and solar, maybe half and half? And if we make twice as much as we need with renewable energy, we can store it on batteries or with hydrogen. And then going through, like just taking all of these available, we ended up building a lot of confidence that actually it's very possible. Mm -hmm. We're just doing it very ineffectively and inefficiently right now. And it's not like we have to wait until someone invents cold fusion or space age polymers that don't exist yet. Uh, we can actually, uh, with, with current knowledge and technology, we can already become completely uh, sustainable and carbon neutral. Of course, it's going to require a huge effort and a huge investment, but it will actually, there will be a return of investment. So there'll be a return on, the, on that investment. So yes, we have to sort of do a lot of effort and deploy a lot of resources towards it, but we will get, uh, get it back uh, with, uh, with dividend. 
both economically, but also socially and ecologically. So, so it's, it's in a way sometimes, and, and we came up with the term, I, I love um, uh, oxymorons. So essentially uh, concepts that consist of seemingly opposing or mutually exclusive ideas. Yeah. Um, one of them is hedonistic sustainability that when, when we designed the Copenhagen Harbor Bath, the first building we ever did, that extends the life of the city into the port uh, of Copenhagen, we saw the joy of people suddenly jumping in the port in the middle of the city. And we thought maybe there is something here. It, maybe it means that the, the clean port is not only nice for the fish or the sustainable city uh, or building is not only nice for the, for the environment, it's also incredible for the people living in it. Mm -hmm. And the other oxymoron is this idea of pragmatic utopia. Normally you would see pragmatism and utopia as being opposite ends of the spectrum. But if you deal with this idea of making the world a better or practically perfect place, you know, utopia means no place because it's the idea of a place so perfect that it couldn't exist in reality. Right. And you then try to deal with the practical, pragmatic realities of life or of society, or in this case of earth. Mm -hmm pragmatic utopia actually becomes possible. Then once you've done that, and the reason we've done this, um, we call it a master plan for the planet or master planet, is that we thought we needed to understand ourselves. Is it hopeless? Is it impossible to accommodate 10 billion people right. uh, in a sustainable way? Do we have to somehow accept to downgrade our quality of life, which like no one really wants, even the environmentalists, really don't want to give up their car or their iPhones or like, so we have to somehow be able to address the reality of, of what we're facing while also accepting that all the energy that we have found over the last 200 years by discovering coal and oil and gas has actually massively increased uh, uh, well-being. It has lowered the amount of people in absolute numbers that live in extreme poverty. It has created all kinds of equality and lowered infant mortality, increased life expectancy, et cetera. So, so much good came out of those energy sources and we don't want to give that up. And we also have to remember, we just have to find other energy sources and, and they're abundant. In fact, the sun as an energy source vastly dwarfs anything else we have uh, in the world. And, and, and I like to remind people that the only things in the world that don't consume energy are dead things. All living things harvest energy from their environment, either from the sun or from, from plants or from, uh, from other animals, right. or we, we, we manage to harness the energy of livestock and dead plants uh, in the form of fossil fuels. And now we have access to renewables. There's, there's so many abundant re resources. And because of the journey we've been through the last 200 years powered by fossil fuels, we have so much inside knowledge and technology that it's going to be easy peasy for us to make it happen if we only focus on it. Well, so it's interesting because you think of the optimism question that I asked you, I have a feeling if you had your group in a room with a whiteboard and you came up with your master plan for the planet, I bet 10 different groups could come up with alternative master plans of stabilization at 2050. And so I now feel optimistic that one has could that there is a model that works, the sustainable model. Now, getting from here to there, oh my God. <laughs> no, no, it's any there. No, exa exactly. <laughs> like, um, and also like the, the, the purpose of a master plan, anyone who's been involved in an urban development knows that you make a master plan where you try to do everything as good as you can with the available information. And then you show it to you know, the stakeholders and they have a bazillion uh, critique points. Then you show it to... Uh, uh, to the to the community, uh, like the, the various user groups, uh, and they'll have all kinds of objections. And then, then you then you go back and then you do it again, and you incorporate this feedback. So the purpose of the master plan is not to say this is what we're doing. It's just that it's much better to have a plan than have no plan at all. And if, once you have a plan, it can actually attract criticism, and criticism is essentially feedback that allows you to make it better. And you can go through a series of, of, of revolutions to, to really get better and better and better. But it's clear that if we don't have a plan now, we're not going to get anywhere in, uh, in 2050. And I, and I had this kind of epiphany when I, 
during uh, the pandemic, I, I went to spend uh, two months uh, living uh, in the house of a friend in a nature reserve in, in Yucatan. And because of it, it was the in, in the pandemic, there was there was no one there, but there was also no maintenance staff working in the park. So because there were no humans, every day, tons of plastic would wash onto the shore. And, and it just made clear that our way of life is already having an impact at a planetary scale, even if we haven't been so megalomaniac that we think we can plan for the entire uh, world. Our absence of plan is actually having catastrophic consequences. So the only way to actually preserve nature today is to really sort of plan for it. And in that sense, um, I, th I think in that sense, like you can say, like it's not a question of whether or not we should make a plan for the for the whole Earth. There is one already, and it's one of neglect and the fact that we don't give a shit. So right. even the the most sort of um, feeble attempt is is, is going to be a, a step in a better direction than than the kind of laissez faire that's that's happening right now. Fair deal. A plan scares the hell out of people. So that's not. It, it, and again, we'll get there somehow. There's a last question always on leading voices. Is your advice to a young person planning a career in the real estate business? Ronnie, I'll start with you. Biggest opportunity ever. Everything is changing around every single part of the process. Um, we're seeing it by the kind of talent we're attracting. This is the time because now you can really have impact. You're not falling in an existing system. Fair deal. Bjorka? I, I would say maybe that... Um... The Danish word for design is uh, is uh, formgivning, which means form giving, uh -huh. which is because to design something is to give form to that which has not yet been given form. Uh, in other words, to give form to the future. And, and specifically, it means that as a form giver, you have the power to give form to the world that you would like to find yourself living in in the future. And I think that that's an incredible power and an, an incredible responsibility. But, but in, the, in this notion of giving, uh, often we ask ourselves when we're designing something, giving form to something, we remind ourselves that giving is about giving a gift. So not only do you have the power to answer what you're being asked to do, uh, to accommodate what you're being asked to accommodate, but in that moment, you actually have an opportunity to give the world something it doesn't have, something that it didn't know that it wanted or needed or could, could enjoy. And I think uh, that's essentially the power you have in real estate, in design and architecture, is that you can, uh, when you design something for someone, you can actually give the world a gift that it didn't know already that it needed or wanted. But once you've put it forward, you couldn't imagine the world uh, without it. And that really makes, um, makes form giving a true sort of human superpower. It's wonderful. It's interesting. And let's tie that to what you just talked about in terms of having a plan and the work that we have to do over those these next 30 years to get to carbon neutral, that's going to affect the built environment and the people making that happen are going to have just an outsized impact on the world. Hey guys, thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary... Take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.